1: Welcome to Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio, coming to you from Northern California on America's Web Radio. And I am so happy to have you here listening to this program. I can't believe it, but this program started seven months ago. I don't know where the time has gone. If you go to the archives of Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio, you will see all the names of all the experts who have given their time and expertise so we can be guided to form better relationships no matter what the issue. And when I review the topics we discussed on this program, I am so astonished that one little radio program has been able to provide its listeners with so much wisdom and information. And thank you, guests, and thank you, listeners. I have two questions for you guys this morning. Have you ever had a problem that required legal guidance? Many of my patients have, and they tell me that they have no idea how to find a lawyer, how to find out if the attorney they finally found is really a good one, and how to proceed. It's a terrible thing to be in that position. And the second question I have is, have you ever had a problem with your employer? I once had a manager who just loathed me with the passion of a thousand sons. she would do anything to make my life miserable and honestly, listeners, I don't know why she hated me so much. She just did. And I had no power in the training position I held. But after a year of watching me live through hostility and disdain, Most of the other people who worked with me suggested I file a hostile work environment complaint. I did just that, although I have to admit, I was very scared, and I was fearful that my career would be negatively impacted. I didn't get an attorney. It never occurred to me. I have have no one of power in my corner at that time, and honestly, I didn't know what I was doing. And I'll tell you what happens at the end of the program, just to leave you kind of hanging. Today's guest I'm so honored to have, and her name is Marta Benegas, Esquire. And she's going to help us figure out how to discern good legal assistance and how to protect yourself in the workplace. And Mrs. Benegas is a graduate of the University of California Davis Law School. And her main areas of practice, I love this, are labor and employer law, business law, social security disability law, civil rights law, and pension rights. I don't know how one attorney could have so many specialties, but she does. She served as deputy legislative counsel in Sacramento, California, drafting legislative proposals and providing counsel to legislators on labor, employment, and business law issues. Mrs. Venegas. Also has over eight years of experience in intellectual property, paralegal, she was at at two large San Francisco law firms, and currently she's a partner at Martin and Venegas and helps clients address employment and labor employee legal issues, as well as assisting clients regarding civil litigation, plaintiff, business, corporate, and civil rights issues. And between, this is such an honor. Between 2017 and 2019, Mrs. Venegas was awarded the Rising Star designation, and this award is given to top-rated attorneys selected through extensive evaluation. Our guest is also a native of Budapest, Hungary, which, by the way, is one of my favorite places in the world, and if you ever get a chance to go there, go there. It is absolutely gorgeous. Mrs. Venegas, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Dr. Ann's Relationship Radio. Tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the United States from Hungary.
2: Well, Dr. Ann, the honor is all mine. I'm, I'm very happy to be here today with you. Um, so uh, it's kind of a long story, but I'll cut it short. Um, after I finished my law degree in Hungary, I felt that I needed a bit more specialized knowledge for what I wanted to do at that time because um, it was just after um, the communist regime has ended in Hungary and I wanted to help my country integrate into the world market and wanted to focus on international sales and business law, export-import, that sort of stuff. And for this purpose, I applied and was admitted to a master's program at Central European University And um, um, eventually, I graduated with an LLM degree in international business law. Um, But while I was at that school, I was the top of the class, and um, this school was on a trimester system. For the middle trimester, we were um, competing for a scholarship to an American university, and I won this scholarship to UC Berkeley and I spent three months as a visiting scholar at uh, Berkeley's Law School, Bolthol. And Mm. one fine afternoon, I walked into a cafe there, and I met a nice guy. His name is Abel, and (laughs) we started to talk, and we kind of hit it off. And just this month, we have celebrated our 19th uh, wedding anniversary with this guy, Abel Vanegas. So it's a very romantic story. (laughs) It's
1: totally romantic. I love that because this is all about relationships and look what happened. And 19 years later, here we are. Um, Here we are. Here we are. And and you have two children, you told me.
2: Yes, I do. I have two daughters. So what drew you to the law? Um, So, um, of course, I wanted to be, I don't know, a ballerina, and an actress, um, whatever, Uh, but I grew up in a highly educated family, um, and both of my maternal grandparents were in very high government positions as lawyers. Specifically, my grandmother was very close to me, uh, kind of, she's my spirit animal, and she was a judge very high position. She was even serving on Hungary's Supreme Court, which is kind of in a different, uh, feels a different function than a Supreme Court here. It's more of an administrative function, but she was a very highly esteemed judge, often interviewed on television and so on and so forth. And she thought I had a knack for language. She knew that I love to argue uh, and kind of find the weak pos- weaknesses in my opponent's position. And she also knew that I love to um, think analytically and write. These were my strengths. And um, an organized analytical mind is very useful for a lawyer. And as writing was never difficult for me, um, she uh, kind of not so subtly pushed me towards a legal education. She pushed me towards, you know, excelling in humanities and continuing writing, uh, encouraged me to write, I don't know, poetry, be on editing uh, the high school newspaper, that sort of stuff. And then she kind of said, okay, I think you should be a lawyer, and kind of push, push, pushed, not so subtly, and... Um, <laughs> I went to law school in Hungary, and I found it very dry and boring. But uh, by the time I graduated, I, I grew to love the the way of thinking, the uh, analysis that we do. And then, by now, I just love the practice. The practice is where the rubber meets the law, uh, r- rubber meets the road, and and I love to practice law.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. I think can't think of anything worse than hiring a lawyer who hated what they did. So <laughs> many of our listeners may not know what goes into becoming an attorney, and for all of those out here who may be considering a career in law, please educate us.
2: So, um... It's better if we just focus on what it requires to be a lawyer in the U.S. Because in Hungary mm-hmm. it's very different. Right. So in the yeah, in the U.S. Um, law is a graduate professional degree. So one has to have a good undergraduate education first, and um, then you have to take the law school admissions test or LSAT, which is an interesting test that. Uh, examines the skills of reading comprehension, application of logical rules, and identifying hidden assumptions of a statement or a set of statements. Um, Then it takes you three years um, full-time intensive uh, school at a reputable law school. Um, I don't think that it is very useful to do it as a correspondence education, because a lot of law is relying on testing out how you can make a losing argument and kind of just have that muscle built that you will sometimes be on the losing side of the argument. And I don't know how one does that in a correspondence Mm -hmm. environment. So you would need to be with classmates, with professors. And you would need to have patience to do a lot of reading. So about 16 hours of a day reading and talking and writing. And eight hours was will squeeze in exercise, sleep, and eating. That's for three years. And all of this Mm. costs rather a great deal of money. So... Usually you get what you pay for. The the more expensive schools are kind of sort of better for you.
1: I can only imagine. Now I used to think a tort was a cake. But listeners, a tort in law is something different which I won't even get into, but it's not a cake. <laughs> I'm curious, Marta, what happens when people call you with illegal problem and what is the process of interviewing and hiring a lawyer? I think a lot of our listeners have no idea what happens
2: well I could talk to you about European cakes and torts uh, a lot <laughs> <laughs> uh, but th- those end so that tort would end in an e and this tort is just e o r t and this is what okay. most That's- people come to me with the tort is a civil wrong and um so my my clients typically call and come into my office after they have tried to resolve this civil wrong that happened to us. Civil, I mean, it does not belong into the criminal system. Nobody has committed a crime. If they reported it to the police, the police did not really say this, this uh, uh, perpetrator is going to be prosecuted. So they come to me, and um, I do about 90% employment loss, so most of my clients come to me in the employment context, and often they have suffered this wrongdoing for years and try to resolve it, but they were not very effective at that. So the first thing I have to assess when they come in, I listen to their story a little bit, but I need to know if they have a recognizable legal claim And if they do, is it still time to recover any uh, damages, money on the claim? Um, So, Marta, I'm going to have to
1: interrupt because we're coming up on a hard break. All right. um, Listeners, we will be back with um, Marta Venegas, Esquire, in one moment.
0: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Anne's Relationship Radio. We are here and so honored to have an attorney with us this morning, Marta Venegas. And we I had to interrupt her because we had a break. We were talking about how to evaluate and find a good lawyer and what happens when she gets a call. So,
2: um, Marta, can you pick up where you left off? Um, yes, of course. Um, so the I was at the point where I'm listening to my client's story and I'm trying to figure out if they have... A, recognizable legal claim and if there is still time to do anything about it mainly to get money for the client or um, something like a severance agreement in which the client would agree to waive her claim in exchange for money Um, and as I started to say law is a zero sum game so uh, my clients want money and the employer doesn't want to pay money and eventually some money will exchange hands. Now, I say this from the employee perspective, but I want to uh, preface it with this caveat that I also represent some very small employers, family businesses mostly. So sometimes I'm on the other side of this situation. But for your listeners, mostly they will have an issue with their employer, then this is what happens. So if the client, if the employee has a plausible claim, or we say it's a colorable claim, so meaning it is a claim that the law recognizes as a legal wrong, then the next question is, is it worth going after this legal wrong? Is there a justification of time and money that we would spend um, in terms of what the damages are or what the severity of the wrong is. Not every injustice has a legal remedy. And even if there is a legal remedy, the cost of obtaining that remedy may outweigh any potential benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, In this interviewing process, I'm often kind of evaluating how I work with the client, do we hit it off, do we share values, do they respect me, do I feel respect for them um, in a way that it would be a beneficial kind of long-term business relationship to enter into with my client because that's fundamentally what we are in, in a business professional relationship. I'm not their counselor for their heartache, I'm there to get them money. (laughs) So I try to avoid people who are trying to sell their case really hard on how good their case is. So people who think that they have a million-dollar case and they have such good case, I kind of learned in my practice that that's not the case typically. And when I tell them that's not the case, they are turned off by it and usually they go away and try to find someone else who buys. And that's the advice I would give to a a client, an employee, or even a small firm employer. If you walk into a lawyer's office and you feel like that lawyer is doing a hard sell on you, like you feel like you're in a, a, a car sales situation, then that's not a that's not a good situation to be in, and I would I would run away. Don't go with the one who promises this tie and the scars. That's not how it happens. Lawsuits are not fun. Nobody goes into a lawsuit thinking this is going to be awesome, other than maybe the lawyer, because kind of we thrive on that controversial (laughs) aspect, and we are kind of, um, we love the argument part of it, but no lawyer can give you a guarantee of success. And that's unethical, and if a lawyer guarantees you success or tells you you have such a good case, we are going to get millions and millions, um, that's, that's an unethical lawyer. Uh, lawyers are trained to be cautious, so if you see that your lawyer is cautious and examines your case from every angle, that's a sign of a good lawyer. Um, and you need to know that an attorney-client relationship is long-term You are going to be together with this lawyer for the better part of two years at least. So you need to be able to trust your lawyer, and your lawyer needs to be able to trust you. There has to be that interpersonal connection somehow on some level. I think you
1: explained that so well, and I remember telling so many of my patients who are going through divorces and who seek therapy from me about their emotions, that going to a lawyer and spewing your emotions isn't what you're paying the lawyer for because you're in a business situation now because divorce is a business. And I know that's not your area of expertise, but I do think that a lot of people have uh, misconceptions about what attorneys can do for them.
2: I, Being a therapist I, is not one. <laughs> I agree with you, Um Uh, I often tell my clients when they start to go into this kind of tailspin about their emotion that I charge for my time, and I'm a Mm. very expensive counselor. Like, you can get a psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, licensed family marriage therapist, a lot cheaper. So let's focus on the law for which I can charge this money. I'd be happy to sit there and listen and charge. (laughs)
1: Yeah, thank you for being so honest. Now, I'm wondering what questions do people ask an attorney that they are interviewing
2: Well I think it's it's important to understand that uh, lawyers have uh, lawyers are busy people they have many other cases and many other clients at different stages of the proceedings and just as you expect, your case to be handled according to your deadlines and your deadlines not be missed, we have to handle other clients' deadlines first and foremost before we can deal with other matters that don't have deadlines yet. So it would be good to ask your lawyer how often you should expect communication from them. And probably your lawyer would tell you, I will communicate with you when there is a thing to communicate. If there is nothing happening on your case, I'm not going to send extraneous emails to you saying there's nothing to report because then I just charge, uh, you know, point one of an hour for nothing. It does not propel your case, and that's also an unethical thing to do. Everything we charge has to be related to propelling the case towards resolution. And also ask your lawyer how best to reach your lawyer, how, um, whether by phone, leaving a message with their assistant, or by email, text messages, etc. I don't like voicemail personally, so uh, leaving long voicemails or several long voicemails to, to me is not very effective because I'm probably going to sit on them 24 hours. Before I listen to them i just I just don't like it i like mm-hmm. I like email it's non intrusive I can get it done anywhere that would be my preferred way. but there are other lawyers who love talking on the phone um then ask your lawyer, especially if they took you on a contingency case uh so that means that we share in the in the result, but if there is zero result, we share in the zero. So if you did not have to pay upfront fees or have to pay your lawyer on an hourly basis, then you should have the lawyer how you could help them getting things done. So let the lawyer know if you wrote or you could write a short summary of what happened in your situation. Um, By all means, bring all the papers relating to your case to the interview with the lawyer. It has happened to me a million times that there was an important paper that wasn't there and the client had to come back another time, which is, you know, just not efficient. And it's just, you have to understand, it's not just you interviewing the lawyer. It's more like a mutual interview to see the lawyer and you can work together to resolve your issue.
1: Right, yeah. I had a question for you, which I'm going to move on, but um, it was about how people can tell if they have a simply adequate one or a good lawyer. I'm going to skip that question because I'm noting the time, and I want to ask you that you have so many areas of expertise, and I hope you don't mind a few questions about each of them.
2: Yeah. That's very good. Thank you. Go ahead. So,
1: First, you represent employees who are having challenges with their employer. And many of us may not realize that employees have rights also. I certainly didn't when I was in training. Would you tell us what those are, what the employees' rights are?
2: So you're right.
1: We have a a break. We have a break in like a minute and a half, just
2: putting you aware. Okay. I will rattle off a couple of things. (laughs) Okay. Okay. You have a right to work in an environment free from discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, but while many people think any hostility is grounds for a hostile working environment claim, that's not so. Hostile working environment is a form of harassment that is done because of the employee is a member of a protected class, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, religion, etc., So not all workplace hostilities are against the law. Um, Mm -hmm. A a lot of these claims are actually just workplace bullying claims, but it's perfectly legal for an employer to berate the employee, yell at them for making a mistake and the like. It's only illegal if they are doing these things because of the employees' race, gender, disability, religion, or the like. Mm -hmm. Another... uh, thing that frequently comes up is um, not receiving wages for overtime wages or lunch breaks, rest breaks at work.
1: I had no idea. Again, we're going to have to break in a few seconds that yelling is okay. Yelling at your employees is okay. Boy. All right. Well, listeners, (laughs) we're going to come back with uh, Marta Venegas in a few moments after our commercial break.
0: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper write down docs Foundation dot org that's docs the number four patientcarefoundation dot org Go to our site and please make a generous tax deductible donation and join the fight today Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
1: Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend
0: Around-town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around-town movers. column. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: to Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio. We are here with a wonderful attorney, Marta Venegas, and we were talking about employee rights. And um, Marta, you were going to add
2: to that. So you mentioned that you didn't know it was legal for an employer to yell at the employee, and a lot of people don't know that they think that or yelling or or. Uh, Obnoxious behavior by a boss is is hostile work environment, so that's not the case. Um, Illegal is only a harassment because of a protected class, but that doesn't mean that that conduct is okay. Uh, It's it's certainly immoral and unethical to yell at an employee, especially to uh, subject them to continued hostilities. It's just not illegal. So there is a gap between bad business practices and immoral and unethical behavior and illegal behavior. And I think good employees are going to leave an employer who is an impossible person to work for. So there is a a remedy, leaving and and getting a better job.
1: Now, can you give us some examples of how these uh, employee rights are often violated?
2: I think um, I was just starting to tell you about the wage and hour violations of not receiving wages for overtime. Um, That is a very interesting and growing area of employment law because most employers by now know that non-exempt employees are entitled to overtime and rest breaks. So the issue comes up when an employee is classified as an exempt employee, but the employee's duties do not satisfy the criteria for being an exempt employee. So if we succeed in proving that, the, the duties, then the employer will be liable for all past due overtime wages, premium pay for rest and lunch breaks, waiting time penalties, and um, civil penalties that often stack on top of one another for violations of the requirements for, of uh, providing an accurate wage statement to the employee. Another way this issue can come up if the employee is classified as an independent contractor, but the relationship is more uh, accurately described as an employer and employee relationship or as formerly what's called master and servant, right? And in these cases, these same penalties can come into play lost an additional penalty for knowing an intentional misclassification as an independent contractor. These are high-value cases, and they are red hot now in the legal field.
1: Well, I know one thing that some employers do is they schedule a dinner break or a lunch break, but the work is so much, the volume of work is so much that the employee doesn't have time to take those, so they work through lunch and they work through dinner and uh, maybe you can make a comment about that.
2: So then the employer needs to know that the employees had to, because of work pressures, had to miss the, the period of rest and lunch, and then the employer has to pay the premium pay to avoid these penalties. If the employee never tells the employer that they skipped the lunch and the employer is under the impression that the employee took these breaks, And the employer is under no duty to provide anything. Um, They don't have to run around and ask the employee, did you take the lunch, did you take the lunch? So there is an, an onus on the employee to let the employer know about this high work, you know, pressure to skip breaks. And then the employer's duty to pay the premium pay, which is an hour for each Missed, uh, either a missed rest break or a missed lunch break in a day. So potentially two hours of wages in a day um, needs to be paid to the employee.
1: Interesting. Now, Marla, when an employer violates an employee right, legally speaking, is this a civil rights issue or a civil case? And what's the difference between the two?
2: Wow, what a good question. <laughs> So all employment cases are civil cases, it, civil just means not criminal, the, the two kinds of animals that we have in the law is civil and criminal. And the civil is by all, all means is the larger category. But only certain employment rights are also civil rights, so violations of those rights is a civil rights case or a civil rights issue. And those rights are established by either a constitution or an anti-discrimination statute such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 or the Americans with Disabilities Act. So discrimination and harassment based on membership of a protected class such as race or disability are civil rights cases under these statutes and, for example, under the California Constitution which has these uh, rights in the Constitution. We also represent clients in other civil rights cases where, um, for example, police misconduct, uh, which is usually a violation of one or more constitutional rights, such as the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. So that's well, like the get, Fourth Amendment. I bet when you get those
1: cases, those are some meaty cases. It's probably really controversial
2: in some ways. The police uh, cases? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes, of course, all law cases are a controversy. Um, It's important to kind of watch the watchers. While I'm like a huge fan of good police work, uh, they have to observe the constitutional boundaries. It's a tug of war, you know, between our constitutional rights and the government's rights to intrude on our civil liberties. And it's, very, it's a very important function of lawyers to represent the weak party in this exchange, which is the person who is subjected to a search or a seizure and arrest.
1: Yes. Very interesting. Now, I'm curious about what would you advise folks to do if they find themselves in a situation where their employee rights are being violated?
2: It's a very important thing to let the employer know what happened and to make this complaint in writing and as soon as possible. So make sure to uh, make the report to human resources or to your manager or the manager's manager and retain a copy for yourself. Retaliation for making such a report is also against the law. So I know a lot of people are afraid of what's going to happen if they make a report, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. Like if they continue to violate your rights and pile on with the retaliation, claim the more for the more for damages, the more the merrier, right? Um, make sure to mention why you think the conduct is a violation of your employee rights. It's not sufficient to say that your boss yelled at you. You have to say that uh, you believe you were harassed or discriminated against because of your membership in a protected class, or because it's a, because it's a sex sexual harassment, because it's a disability discrimination. You need to kind of correct, try to correctly identify this. If you need a lawyer to explain. To you, what you should say to HR, by all means, try to get a consultation with a lawyer. Then human resources, if they have any such department, will have to uh, investigate this complaint that you had, and you as an employee have a duty to participate in any investigation of any matter by human resources, even if you made the complaint. So make sure the employer knows what is going on. Make sure to take notes of your meetings with human resources and follow up with a writing summarizing what you discussed and what next steps or agreements you came out with. So send a follow-up email and save a copy for your records. And if this investigating does not resolve your problem within a reasonable time, what I mean is within a few months. So two, three months, don't wait longer. Go to a lawyer. Most county bar associations have an attorney referral service, and a lawyer will most certainly see you for a half-hour consultation at little or no cost to you. Um, Don't wait on your claim too long. Uh, Most employment claims have a one-year status of limitation, but sometimes some sort of claim has to be filed within six months.
1: Oh, my gosh. Listeners, we are getting some great free legal advice here. Now, Marta, I want to know what happens – I really want to know personally too – what happens when a hostile work environment complaint is made?
2: So if an employee makes a hostile work environment type harassment complaint, the employer is required to promptly investigate the harassing conduct and to take all remedial steps to ensure that no further harassment will occur. So they may place the complainer, the complaining party, on a paid administrative leave to make sure that while they investigate, no further harassment will happen. If the harasser is the supervisor of the employee, then the employer is a really big trouble because they are strictly liable for any damages caused by the harassment under most Statutes, such as lost wages and emotional distress. So if the employee had to take um, unpaid leave because they couldn't handle the harassment and they were not paid during that leave, then that's lost wages and, of course, emotional distress, pain and suffering type of damages are always due under these things. An employee is entitled also to report her complaints not only to the employer but to one of the civil rights agencies, such as the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or California's Department of Fair Employment and Housing, and then those agencies will step in and investigate and counsel the employee kind of through the process.
1: I think that's such important information, Marta, because when I had to file my hostile work environment, um, uh, I didn't know what to do, and I never heard that I should have Contacted somebody else. Also, it seemed like the my case was in the company's hand, and I just was there floating. So now we all have some information about what to do. And when would you suggest if an attorney might be needed after filing a hostile work environment complaint?
2: Um, and we we're coming up on a hard yeah. two minutes. So okay, so I would definitely try to get an attorney before going to that administrative agency process because employees often misunderstand what the most serious violation of the law is. They kind of feel uh, some conduct is more egregious than others, but we lawyers can more counsel them on the better aspects of their complaints, especially if there's a lot of things going on in in the employment environment you can't ever be too early to an, emplo- an employment attorney. It may be the case that the lawyer would say to you, your case is too early, not yet ripe. Come back to us if this and this happens and give you some landmarks. But in my experience, often the other thing is true, the client's delay and delay and delay often unnecessarily to retrain, retain an, an attorney and that harms their case to a very serious degree. So I'm going to squeeze in this
1: question before my next question for you before our break. And moving on to another area of your expertise, you are well-versed in Social Security Disability Law. And I have so many patients who don't understand why their applications are denied, and they're upset when they do and when they are denied. Now, what are the criteria for qualifying for Social Security Disability
2: Insurance? So um, Social Security uses a five-step process to evaluate the claims, um, so that would be a long answer. My short answer is that a Social Security claimant has to meet or equal the criteria of a recognized disability, so that's a substantial impairment, blah, blah, blah. Or there are about, I don't know, 150 of these conditions listed by the Social Security Administration. And those Oscar oh, must be, oh my God, yes, yeah, must be unable <laughs> to engage in their former work or in any substantial gainful employment in the marketplace.
1: Okay. Well, we're going to come back on that note. And listeners, we are going to be back with Marcia Venegas in a few moments after our commercial break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
0: Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Rinaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best. And for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands from manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back, listeners, to Dr. Ian's Relationship Radio. We are here with such a wonderful attorney, Marta Venegas, and she's talking to us right now about Social Security Disability Insurance. And by the way, listeners, this program, like all of my programs, will be archived, so if you need to hear a repeat version of it to get all this information so that you understand it, um, look at the archives under my program. So, uh, Marta, I'm I'm curious. Could we go back? And uh, could I ask you what are the? Uh, where do people find out where the Social Security five step process is to file a claim or to have it evaluated? So the,
2: the five step process is. Uh, found in the Social Security Regulations. That's the internal process that the Social Security Administration uses, and it basically is only needed for you if you are writing a uh, brief for an administrative hearing after your application was denied and the reconsideration was also denied. It's the very technical part for which you probably need a lawyer, But the Social Security Administration puts out a lot of information on their website, which is, I think, ssa.gov. I'm kind of, don't quote me on that, but it's really easy to find it if you just enter it into your search engine as Social Security Administration. And they have a lot of information on what medical conditions are, Um, the recognized medical conditions that you have to meet or equal. Equal means kind of a technical term. It means to approximate that disease, to have symptoms that are not exactly that, but the severity of them uh, in accumulation reaches that disease. Um, So the Social Security Administration's website is a very, very useful tool uh, for you to know what to expect uh what kind of conditions they recognize, and uh, it's very useful for you to do your initial application and the reconsideration.
1: Now, I have so many more questions I want to ask you. I'm going to race through them because I'm aware that we have only 10 minutes left in our program this morning. So is there a waiting program after one has been approved for SSDI?
2: There is no waiting program program or waiting period at all. In fact, once you make a claim of disability, uh, if your claim is approved, it's approved to re- retroactively to the date of the onset of the disability that the Social Security Administration determines you became disabled. So basically that's based on your medical documentation of the onset of when you became disabled. So Sometimes it may be going back for years.
1: Now, are there any conditions that automatically qualify one for SSI's disability? Hmm.
2: Yes, but I am personally not very familiar with these, as these are the cases that never need to walk into my office because they automatically Hmm. got the disability. I know that blindness and uh, terminal illness that threatens with death within a year are automatically disabling, but, again, I would not know the source. It's kind of just anecdotal knowledge
1: mm-hmm. now a lot of my yeah. patients file for disability social se- yeah. social security disability and they they tell they're me they're automatically denied and then they go they're back not. and go for a second time so what would you advise those of us who have been denied yeah, to do okay
2: so the yeah. social security is an insurance program and uh, it's just run by the federal government. So m- as most insurance programs do, you likely will be denied unless your claim is exceptionally strong. If you have any um, doubts, if they have any doubts about the disability, their major response will be a denial. Don't get discouraged. Just ask a reconsideration right away. An attorney will likely only take you once the reconsideration step is completed. So reconsideration is basically some other evaluator of a claim will look at it, basically a second set of eyes. If you are still denied then, then by all means request a hearing and then go talk to try to find a lawyer to take your case. Uh, we can often counsel people um, after that denial or reconsideration denial what type of documentation is still missing from their case and help them navigate through this complex process. It may be just that they don't uh, follow the doctor's orders and that is not a good idea. Uh, If your case is sufficiently strong, then we would represent you or an attorney would represent you to the hearing with an administrative law judge and we would argue that you should be approved for disability and create kind of supportive documentation by going back to your doctor and asking them to supportive medical documentation. There are also several nonprofit agencies that can assist with Social Security disability claims, especially if you are homeless or otherwise destitute. So if you are on food stamps, then probably a nonprofit agency would take your case.
1: I'm curious, so once you're placed on Social Security disability, is there ever a review of the decision or does SSI
2: So um, to clarify the Social Security administers, two disability payment programs, the Social Security Disability Insurance and the Social Security Income, both of those are based on the same criteria of disability. It just depends on whether you... Have enough work credits for Social Security Disability Insurance or not? If not, then you go on the SSI program. And yes, to answer your question, the SSA periodically reviews the medical condition of a claimant because their job is to ensure that federal funds for Social Security claimants are conserved. So if somebody may get better, then they will need to uh, submit continuing documentation that they did not get better, that they did not do so.
1: Now, how much do people usually receive when they're on SSI disability?
2: It varies with the type of Social Security disability benefits. As I said, there are two kinds and the claimant may be entitled to and there is a small variation as to the cost of living and how much disability insurance they have. It's all very esoteric to me because my practice only focuses on the condition that we need to prove that is disability. But to be sure, it's not a lot of money to live on. It is it is a pitifully little money. And so for this reason Beneficiaries who get beneficiaries are the ones who get this this money. They can engage in gainful activity, earning not more than about eleven hundred dollars each month, and remain on disability. So any money they make that's less than eleven hundred a month is not substantial gainful activity to so to so they can supplement this income with that much work. I see
1: now. What are the top three pieces of advice that you would share with our listeners about Social Security disability?
2: So first is do not get discouraged. Um, it is an insurance agency. So if you have ever had to file an insurance claim, maybe on a car accident, and you know what you're dealing with. It is a government-run program, so there is a lot of, you know, red tape, a lot of papers need to be filed. and often filed multiple times. It's it's a hassle. You have to do it. The other point is make sure your medical documentation is submitted to the administration. Uh, Make sure it's good, so go to your doctors often and make sure that you complain about all of your symptoms to the doctor, so it's all documented. Ask for the reconsideration and ask for a hearing. Don't miss the deadlines for these. You can get an, you, can, you can get your claim approved even you, if you miss the deadline, but then it's another form to fill out of why you missed the deadline. Okay. And then now finally, I, oh, sorry. yeah, one more. Uh, if your doctor prescribes you a treatment or a medicine, you should take it. If they find out that you are not following the doctor's advice, then they will assume that you're not really... Sick, so therefore you're not really disabled.
1: Now, I know you're also a specialist in (coughs) pension rights, but unfortunately, I'm looking at the time, and we're not going to have time, to address that, That maybe we can have you back to talk about pension rights. Uh, I hope so. But I want to know where you're located. I think it's in, in Concord, California. And How can our listeners get in contact with you?
2: So I live in Concord, California, but my law firm is uh, located next town. It's called Walnut Creek, California. My law firm is Martin and Vanegas APC. Our phone number is 925-937-5433. We offer free 30-minute consultations to prospective clients. But at this time, I have to tell your listeners that this is an attorney advertisement pursuant to the Rules of Professional Conduct for members of the State Bar of California.
1: Okay, I guess that's your obligation. I didn't even know. I was just wondering how people could get a hold of you. And is
2: there a website that they can visit? Yes, there is a website. It's uh, martinvanegaslaw.com.
1: So, Martina Vanegas. Esquire, you've provided us with such an interesting hour, and I thank you so very much for being our guest today. I feel so enlightened. And listeners, I promised I would tell you what happened to me, so here it is. I was encouraged by the staff with whom I worked to file a hostile work environment complaint. I followed their advice. I was interviewed. Staff members were interviewed. Some of them told me that they had reported Um, what they had reported to the case investigator and I don't know what happened to the manager against whom I filed the complaint but I do know I was transferred to a much better environment and I've never been insulted to or disrespected since my transfer took a lot of courage to file a complaint and I was really afraid of protecting myself and if that would damage my career or not what happened though is that other people also started transferring and since that time, that manager has reportedly had difficulty keeping staff. I ask myself, why does this manager still have a job? The answer I have had to come to peace with is, I'll never know. It's above my pay grade. So, why am I sharing with this? You with this? This with you? I want you to be brave. If you're not, nothing will change. And work is not meant to create misery. And until next week, remember, only you can make your world the way you want it to be.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.